some things just don't make sense. Some things strike us as wrong. For example, if I were to say something like tasty Brussels sprouts or delicious cauliflower, it just doesn't work. Now, I know every illustration breaks down, and there are some of you who don't get this, but some of you, I have no doubt, get what I'm saying, right? There are just certain things you hear or you encounter, and you go, how? How does that go together? The, the adjective tasty does not fit with the noun Brussels sprouts. It just doesn't work. You, you hear it, and reflexively, you, you, you go, what? Really? How? In what world? That will be our experience this morning. We have been uh, walking into a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We explored first a little bit what happens before, and then an overview of the whole sermon, and then an overview of the Beatitudes. And then beginning last week, we began to walk through the Beatitudes. And today, we come to the second of the Beatitudes. We're going to explore it, and it will have that same effect on us. It will strike us as wrong. It will certainly not be what we're expecting. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And our reaction will be, what? How? Blessed are those who mourn Jesus? Really? I mean, those things sound contradictory. They, they sound incompatible. John Stott writes this. He says, one might almost translate this second beatitude, happy are the unhappy, in order to draw attention to the startling paradox it contains. Blessed are those who mourn. Really, Jesus? Before we look closer at it, let me remind you of a number of things. The Sermon on the Mount, the, the beatitudes, and this is the... The, the ethics of the inbreaking kingdom is what I have argued. That when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, what we are encountering is, is the ethics of the inbreaking kingdom. When we hear and believe the good news, as God's inbreaking kingdom breaks into our lives, we begin to be changed. As men and women, young and old, this comes to reflect what we look like. And the, the Beatitudes reflect, they speak of Christian character. When the Spirit has His way in us, when the gospel takes root in us, we are changed. The Beatitudes as a whole are a description of Christian character. This is what we become like as the gospel works in our lives. And what follows through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as we move forward, we will look at Christian conduct, Christian motivation, Christian ambition. This is the ethic of the inbreaking kingdom. This is what happens when we believe the good news. Let me remind you also that as we walk through the eight Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes are not describing eight different Christians that one is poor in spirit, that another mourns, that another is meek, that still another hungers and thirsts for righteousness, etc., through the Beatitudes. No, these are all interrelated and inseparable qualities. They belong together, and they are part of the life of every gospelized person. Also, I noted, importantly, that these are not natural human qualities. Jesus did not begin going around Galilee and Palestine looking for people who were like this, looking for those 
who were poor in spirit, looking for those who were mourning. No, Jesus went uh, calling people to repent and to believe the good news, and as the gospel took root in people's hearts, people began to produce these qualities. They, they were produced in them by the gospel. Just as all of the, the qualities, characteristics go together, so too all of the blessings. All of the blessings belong to everyone who is in Christ. They are all aspects of what it means to receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who receive the kingdom of heaven, and remember from last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All those who receive the kingdom of heaven, who are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, are also comforted. They also inherit the earth. They are filled. They are satisfied. They receive mercy. They see God. They are called the children of God. Nonetheless, order is significant. The first beatitude, the one we looked at last week, is the essential starting point, the essential beginning for the whole sermon. It sets the tone. We miss that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they come before God spiritually bankrupt with nothing to offer, utterly, completely dependent upon him. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we miss that, if we lose sight of that, this whole sermon will become horribly twisted. It will become either frustrating idealism we can never live up to, or oppressive legalism that will crush us. Order matters. It begins with the first beatitude for a reason. And today we will see that the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, leads very naturally into the second. The first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today we look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what is Jesus saying? How are we to understand this paradox? Those who mourn are blessed. Remember we unpacked the meaning of blessed, uh, what it means to be blessed. Those who mourn are fortunate. Congratulations. You lucky bums is how one theologian puts it. You who mourn are to be congratulated. You are the fortunate ones. You are blessed. The verb tense used here by Jesus actually indicates a continuous action. So so we could more accurately translate Jesus' words as blessed are those who are mourning or, or blessed are those who are in a state of mourning. Blessed are those who are continually mourning. Really, Jesus? How can that be true? Of all the Beatitudes, I find this one probably the most jarring of them all. It seems to make no sense at all. Imagine with me, I don't remember this anymore, I've forgotten so many parenting things that I thought I would never forget, but imagine me as a young father of young boys, my boys are all grown now, but imagine, I don't know, when do kids learn to ride a bike? 19 years ago, my oldest, Calvin, he's three and I'm teaching him to ride a bike, and, and he's had training wheels, but the training wheels are off, and he's excited, but nervous, and, and I assure him, hey, I will hold on to the seat and, and, until I make sure you got it, and when I let go, I will run beside you and, and, and grab you if you need help, and so he starts. He starts pedaling, and he's doing it. He's doing fine. I feel that he's bouncing. I loosen my grip, and I let go, and I run beside him, and he's doing it, and he's smiling, But then suddenly there's this giant wobble, and I reach for the seat, and I miss it, and he biffs hard. Just imagine road rash on his face, 
his arm, his knee, blood starts to flow, little bits of gravel. And then the tears and the crying. Imagine me standing there over him as his father and going, Congratulations! It's shocking. God says, blessed are those who mourn, who are in a state of mourning. Not just mourn once, but continually mourning. What? How, Jesus? What are you saying? Nicholas Wolterstorff, in the book he wrote following the tragic mountain climbing death of his son, his 25-year-old son, he wrote this. Blessings to those who mourn. Cheers to those who weep. Hail to those whose eyes are filled with tears. Hats off to those who suffer. Bottoms up to the grieving. How strange. How incredibly strange. There is another important thing for us to note at this point. The word that is translated in English as mourn is a very strong Greek word for, for grief. It, it, it's used to describe profound grief, grief associated with the mourning of the death of a loved one. This is deep, gut-wrenching lament of which Christ speaks. One month before Christine and I were married, her father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Just less than two months after we were married, June 28, 1997, he died. I was a new husband. I was grieving myself, the loss of him. I had for years longed to, for having a, a, a in-laws who, who loved each other. I grew up in a broken home, and I was gone almost before it started. And I remember that first night, laying in bed with Christine holding her as she, she sobbed, she wailed. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That's what he's speaking of, not, not just a little mist yet. He's speaking of the deepest kind of grief, a grief that some of you know, so that you have experienced yourselves. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Congratulations. You are fortunate. You are in sync with my kingdom. And we're left asking, Jesus, really? Really? How? At this point, I want to remind you again that it is so important that we understand and remember that these are not natural human qualities. This is not natural grief. This is something that is produced in the lives of every man, woman, or child when we hear and believe the gospel, when the gospel takes root in our hearts, when the Spirit of God has His way in us, these qualities begin to emerge. And so what that means is that those in whom the gospel is taking root, those in whom the Holy Spirit is having His way, will be those who are increasingly characterized by an ongoing and deeply heartfelt grief, deep, heartfelt mourning. That leaves us asking an important question. The question is why? Here's how Daryl Johnson asks the question. Why is piercing sorrow a sign that human beings are being grabbed by the gospel? 
Why does Jesus identify passionate grief as one of the marks of of those upon whom the light dawns, upon whom the kingdom of God has come? Why? Before we wrestle with that question, I, I want to make a couple important comments about mourning. First, this beatitude gives us permission to be people who grieve. I don't know how much you've thought about this, but our culture in the West particularly is not real good at grieving. It's blessed that we, that we offer through Janela's ministry grief support, a place where people can share their stories and, and can, can grieve well, be helped in grieving well, but our culture doesn't do this well. We want to move on. We want to get through it. We want to distract ourselves. We want to numb ourselves. We don't want to experience grief. We don't want to weep. Jesus gives us permission to grieve, to mourn. But second, and this is absolutely vital for us to note, Jesus is blowing up the notion that is preached, sadly, in some circles of the church. That notion that says that Jesus wants you, it's put different ways, but Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That Jesus wants your happiness now. That if you come to him, that if you put your faith in him, then things will be good. And and if they're not, then maybe your faith is deficient. Again, Daryl Johnson writes this, This is also his way of letting you know right from the beginning that living in his kingdom in this world will involve sorrow. Jesus does not promise unbroken happiness. We need to hear that. We need to hear that in the church. We need to to know that. And we need to be truthful as we proclaim the hope that is found in Christ. That coming to Christ does not mean a promise of unbroken happiness in this world. There is such a thing as Christian tears. Yes, there is also joy. Angels came. We're going to celebrate this not too long from now. Angels came on the hills outside of Bethlehem and proclaimed good news of great joy. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we are called, we are implored over and over and over again to rejoice, to rejoice. There is great room. There's much for which there is reason for joy, true and great and lasting joy. Yet Jesus is saying that his coming also brings sorrow, brings heart-breaking grief. Why? Why does the inbreaking of God's kingdom cause us to mourn? Why does the good news believed and taking root in our lives cause us gut-wrenching grief? Remember, these are not natural human qualities. This grieving that Jesus speaks of is not produced by natural human sorrow and tragedy. Last week, we looked at what it means to be poor in spirit. And its meaning was spiritual. It means recognizing our utter dependence upon God, that we come spiritually bankrupt with empty hands and empty pockets, needing God's mercy, needing his grace, unable to do anything to redeem ourselves or make ourselves acceptable. We come with nothing. That's what it means to be spiritually poor. When we think of this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, it also is about a spiritual reality. It means that we grieve over sin. That we feel gut-wrenching sorrow because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God. 
because of the many times that we reject God's way and go our own way, because of the, the many times that we are guilty of idolatry, pursuing other things, lesser things in place of God. When we encounter Jesus, when we encounter the God of the universe in human flesh, we will discover in his presence our utter sinfulness. Our wretchedness will be plainly exposed before him, the blackness of our hearts, the wickedness of our lives before a pure and holy and good God. Remember the vision that Isaiah the prophet had of God in his glory? Do you remember Isaiah's response to that? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King Almighty, the Lord Almighty. He is absolutely undone. He sees, he gets a, a vision of God in his beauty and his holiness and his goodness and his purity, and he is undone. Woe, I am ruined. That's what Jesus is saying. That when we hear the good news, when the gospel takes root in our lives, we, we first come to that place of spiritual poverty where we recognize, God, I've got nothing. I can't fix what's broken. I come to you utterly, completely dependent upon you. And then face to face with one who is holy and love and pure, we recognize the darkness of our own hearts. And we can't help but mourn. We can't help but grieve over our sin. Our hearts break as we gaze upon the purity of Christ, our Redeemer. Blessed are those who mourn. John Stott writes, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. Do you and I grieve over our sin? Do we fight against it? Do we recognize the ugliness of it? Does it break our hearts as it breaks God's heart? As we gaze upon the purity and holiness of Jesus, are we moved to tears? That's what Jesus says happens. There's more yet for us to see. Not only do the gospelized mourn over our own personal sin, the gospelized, those in whom the gospel is, is taking hold of, mourn over the sin of the world around them. It, see, in Jesus we see what we are supposed to be like. In the inbreaking kingdom of God, we see what the world is supposed to be like. And then we look around and we see the world as it is, how utterly broken and messed up it is because of sin. And we mourn, we grieve, our hearts break. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this about the Christian. He mourns because of the sins of others. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees it. The moral muddle and unhappiness and suffering of mankind. He knows that it is all due to sin and he mourns because of it. This world as it is. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Do we understand that? Look around you. Look at the world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship writes this, the Beatitude people see that for all the jollity on board, the ship is going down. 
ship is beginning to sink. Because so many around us have rejected Christ and the way of His kingdom, the world is an utter mess. We look around and we see hostility and violence and war. Countless, countless numbers slaughtered, displaced, suffering. We see rampant greed and self-centeredness that allows the rich to get richer while the poor get poorer and more desperate. Do we mourn? We see the breakdown of marriages and of families and domestic violence and multitudes of children growing up without fathers or without mothers. Do we mourn? We see the pornography industry raking in massive profits while degrading both women and men as well as God's good gift of sexuality. Do we mourn? We see the slaughter of tens of thousands of helpless, vulnerable, preborn children through abortion. Do we mourn? We see the polarization and division and hatred, the contempt between people, the contempt shown towards people created in the image of God. Do we mourn? Too often the church, rather than mourning, stands in judgment. We look down our noses at people. We are sometimes more like James and John in that story in Luke where they say to Jesus, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven upon them? <laughs> but instead, we ought to be those whose hearts ache. We ought to have tear-stained faces. We ought to be those who mourn. Those who grieve for the world that is in desperate need of Jesus and the good news and His inbreaking kingdom. Do you remember the story in Luke as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem the week before He will be arrested and tried and condemned, executed on a Roman cross as an insurrectionist? He rides a donkey up from Bethany towards the Mount of Olives, up the Mount of Olives, and as he crests the mount, he looks, and there before him, across the Kidron Valley, is the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And Jesus weeps. He weeps. Because his people have, by and large, rejected him. He is the one they've been waiting for. He is the one who can give them what they most desperately long for. And they've rejected him. And so Jesus sees and he weeps. Do we mourn like Jesus mourned? As we look around at the world around us and its brokenness and its lostness and its sin, do our hearts break? Do our hearts break for what breaks his heart? You see, when we get close to the heart of Jesus, we will inevitably be women and men, boys and girls, teenagers, who, whose hearts are moved as Jesus' heart was moved. We will be those who cry out to those around us that there is another way, that there is the Jesus way, the kingdom way, that things do not have to be this way. I heard someone share a number of years ago 
something that is both encouraging and discouraging at the same time. I don't know if you've ever heard something like that. Some financial people had done some calculations, some estimating. But the point was this. If every believer in just North America, okay, this isn't a message about tithing. This isn't about guilt. But if every Christian in North America, the U.S. and Canada, tithed, if we all gave 10% of our income for the work of Christ, every single church could be funded, every single AIDS program in Africa could be fully funded, and every food, every hunger program around the world could be fully funded. It does not have to be this way. As we see our own sin, the blackness of our own hearts, as we see the brokenness of the world because of the world's sin all around us, we will be those who mourn because we have received a vision of the inbreaking kingdom of God. We've heard the good news. We, we've seen and heard what things should be like, what things can be like, and our hearts will ache and our tears will run. I quoted Nicholas Wolterstoff earlier, and I want to read you a paragraph from his book, Lament for a Son, written shortly after his son was killed, this accident. He asks the question, who then are the mourners that Jesus blesses? Here's how he answers that. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace there is no one blind and who ache whenever they see someone unseeing. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one hungry and who ache whenever they see someone starving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one falsely accused and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who fails to see God and who ache whenever they see someone unbelieving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who suffers oppression and who ache whenever they see someone beaten down. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one without dignity and who ache whenever they see someone treated with indignity. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. Those who've seen a vision of who we were meant to be. Those who've seen a vision of what God's kingdom looks like. And we look into our own lives and we look around us and our hearts ache. And we're brought to tears. We grieve. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. See, our aching hearts show us that we are in sync with his kingdom. Our tear-stained faces show that we have been captured by the vision of his inbreaking reign in this world. There is yet one more thing we must consider, one more thing that we need to reflect on, and that's the rest of verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. 
That, that lends itself to the question, when? when? When will they be comforted, Lord? The answer is twofold. Later, they will be comforted later at the consummation when Christ returns, when he brings history to its appointed end. We know that this is not how things will end. We know that death will not get the last word. We know that Christ will come and he will finally set all things right that he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. That day is coming. There will be comfort to come. But it is not only comfort in the future. It is also, this is also the promise of comfort in the present. The word translated comfort here is the Greek word parakaleo. It's a rich word. Its primary meaning is to exhort, to encourage, to embolden. David Johnson says it's used of soldiers cheering each other on. And the English word, etymologically, it, it comes from two words, calm, which means with, and fortis, strength. Strengthened by being with. And it's profoundly interesting that the word for the Holy Spirit comes from that same word, parakaleo, paraklete. The Holy Spirit, when we hear the good news, and put our faith in Jesus, we are redeemed. We receive the kingdom. We are brought into the kingdom. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit who is with us to strengthen us in the midst of what we experience in this world. And so in the midst of our tears, as we grieve over our own sin, as we grieve over the brokenness of this world, in the midst of that, God is with us, strengthening us by his Spirit. And strangely, in the midst of tears, we experience comfort. Because he is with us. We see the blackness of our own hearts and the Holy Spirit whispers into our ears, Jesus has paid it all. Your guilt is gone. You are forgiven. We look around at the world and tears run down our faces and the Spirit reminds us that even now, even when we don't see it, the Father and the Son are at work in this world. His kingdom is invading and nothing can stop it. Nothing. So we comforted. I love what Walter Stoff calls the mourners, aching visionaries. Those who've seen a vision of what God is doing, have seen a vision of what God is doing now. And so though our hearts ache, though tears run down our faces, we see this vision. Do you see do you see why those who are gospelized are those who mourn? Do you see the ugliness of your sin? Do I see the ugliness of my sin? And does it cause me to grieve, to mourn, to weep? Do you see the destruction sin continues to bring on this earth? That is why we ache. That is why we mourn. But brothers and sisters, there is more to see. There's more to see. There is a cross. There is a cross where sin has been defeated. There is a cross that brings redemption to sinful people, to sinners like you and me. There is a cross that brings healing to a broken, messed up world. And it is a cross. It is a cross where mourners find comfort. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, this is a hard text. This is a hard word. But it's a good word. Would you move in our hearts? Would you give us a vision of what is? What is true in our own lives? Of what is true in the world around us? But Jesus, give us a vision of the cross. It stands at the very heart of the good news. Give us a vision of your inbreaking kingdom. Jesus, fill us with your spirit and comfort us, we pray. In your name, for your glory. Amen.